Colossians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11. Thankful for Miss Francis and reading those verses uh, for us. Whether you knew it or not, we're in a mini-series. I'm just picking up where I left off a couple of weeks ago in Colossians, and we'll continue on uh, next week as well. want to uh, just talk for just a brief moment about inconsistencies. Inconsistencies. Those things can be that are inconsistent can be frustrating, especially if there's places that there shouldn't be contradiction. All right? How about the English language, if you will? Languages shouldn't have inconsistencies, you would assume. Now, as someone that regularly and often butchers the English language, I'd like to take a moment to pick on the English language. This might be a fight that I can't win, but we have some inconsistencies in the English language. How about the rule, I before E except after C, right? It's a rule you learn when you're in school. This rule applies to many words except when it doesn't. Like height or C's or science and a bunch of other words. My English major wife went on to tell me, she said, but there's rules that explain that. So you have to make up rules to break rules. That's inconsistency, all right? Look up homophones, if you will, homophones. These are words that sound alike but are spelled differently, such as meat, like what we take from animals to put in our mouths, and meat, like I'm going to meet someone or introduce you to someone, meat. Other examples, there, there, and there. Yeah, that makes sense. There, referencing a location. There, a possessive version of they. There, combination of they and are. These are inconsistencies, folk. Look, here's another one. There is also a thing where words can be spelled the same. I am a terrible speller. This is my worst nightmare. Words can be spelled the same but aren't alike in other ways. Wind, like the air that moves. Or wind, like winding up a clock. Object, material thing one perceives with the senses. Or object, firmly opposing something. Inconsistencies. Well, we have a little fun here with the English language. Inconsistencies can be discouraging, especially in the places they shouldn't be. For the Christian life, We shouldn't be inconsistent with our living. And that's what Paul is pressing before us here. In chapter 3, there's actually a turn where Paul begins to move from doctrine to application as to how you should live as a believer in Jesus Christ. He begins and hinges with, if then you've been raised with Christ. A few weeks back, we looked at verses 1 through 4, which our passage this morning is directly connected to with the therefore that we see. In verses 1 through 4, we looked at a life that is with Christ, united with Christ. Union with Christ is the doctrine that's placed in those verses. First, we see a life that is with Christ is raised with Christ. This speaks to new life, being raised from the dead in your sins to life in Christ, a new way in which you were to walk. We looked at also there's these imperatives that he gives us to seek and set our minds on things that are above. We're to aim for Christ. And then lastly, he begins with speaking about how we are hidden in Christ. 
speaking of our union with him. Paul will continue in verses 5 through 11 and really pressing in a little bit more on what it looks like to be in Christ and dying to oneself. And he explains this in verses 5 through 17 by two things, putting off and putting on. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man. I've simply entitled this message, The Old and New Man. And really, this is part one. Next week, we'll look at part two in verses, uh, verses 12 through 17. But let's read uh, for a moment verses 5 through 7 again. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. First, I'd like to look at it at this, put to death. The first mark, first consistency in the life of a Christian life should be putting to death what is earthly in us. Now, this statement we've already addressed a little bit a few weeks back, but he says it very clearly, put to death. The, to, the meaning of this word is to make dead, slay, deprive of power, destroy the strength. Actually, the same word was used last week as Brother Rick preached from Romans chapter 4. In verse 19, it said, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, this is speaking of Abraham, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. It's this considering lifeless, having no opportunity. There's no loyalty to sin anymore. And Paul really presses in on this in Romans chapter 6. Would you go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6 with me? I want to read a few verses in there that really highlights this idea of putting to death sin in our lives or the earthly things that are in our lives. In verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Sin should have no opportunity in our lives. Back in Colossians where he speaks about that, what is earthly in you, that's often translated members in other translations. So he's speaking about our bodies. What we have are not to be used for sin. He continues in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. If you have been raised with Christ, Paul is saying there is a daily habit in the life of believers to put sin to death and in that action it is re referring and looking at sin as it has no 
authority and right in my life. I'm not going to give it a leg up. I'm not going to negotiate with it. This was illustrated uh, by one individual that retold a story about a missionary that was in a foreign country. And while he was there, this missionary uh, developed and cultivated the land and, and had a garden to sustain and keep and feed his family. And he had a young toddler, and like most toddlers, they put anything and everything in their mouths. And he discovered that there was a very life-threatening, poisonous plant that would grow naturally in this area that he was a missionary. And it occurred and it grew in his garden. This missionary had no other choice, since he had this young toddler, to be sure that he took it out of his garden. So he went and he cut it off and threw it away. And just a few days later, it began to spring up again. This plant was known to being very vicious and very, very deeply rooted in the soil. So it was a process of continually uprooting and trying to put to death this poisonous plant. That is the sin in our lives. We handle it the same way. There's no, there's no, well, I really can't handle this today. It's life or death. John Owen, I read a few weeks ago, mentions, it will kill you if you're not killing it. Sin is not our friend. It's an enemy. Paul is saying this should not be in the life of a believer. They should pursue to kill, to put to death what is earthly in us. And he lists five things. Five things that really relate to one another in some way or another. The first is sexual immorality. Actually, if you were to look at most of these words and search them out, you will find most of these words are in additional lists that we have. Some people like list and some people don't. I'm a list guy. I love list. Paul likes list. Jesus loves list. And these are some of the things that should not be present in the Christian life. Sexual immorality. Another way it can be interpreted is fornication. The Greek word here is porneia. Maybe you hear it. This is the Greek word that's used to form what we call pornography. This is a very serious sin. To engage in sexual immorality of any kind was often an implication of prostitution. Very serious act of sin. Something that should be nowhere present in the life of a believer. Our bodies should not be used to go and have sexual immorality in our lives. It's used 23 times. Jesus and Paul both use these terms. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, latter part of that verse says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Next word he uses is impurity. Impurity is used ten times in the New Testament. And it speaks to anything that's immorally clean or immorally uh, or physically unclean. It's dirty. It can mean either both physical or morally. Paul is speaking to the moral uncleanliness that this has in our lives. Often connected with lust. Often connected with sexual sins. It's compared to lawlessness at times. Jesus actually uses lawlessness 
when he's describing the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Verse, excuse me, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are not like what you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's impurity. It's lawlessness. It's unclean. It's dirty. Third thing Paul mentions in this list of things that should be put to death is passion. Now we might say, well, I have passion for this hobby or this interest. That in itself is not bad, but it's where this passion is placed upon. As I mentioned, this list is very much uh, related with the words there, and this would be particularly desires that are given to nature. This speaks of a passion that can't be quenched. It's a passion that's driven by, I want more. I don't have enough here. It's only actually used three times. Paul uses it again in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that one of you know that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Often referring, yet again, to lust. Very similar to passion is evil desires, the fourth thing that Paul's list. It's not like a, a desire for my uh, desires, that all desires are bad, yet again. Not like I desire for my children to have a good education or the fact that I desire for the Cowboys to win a Super Bowl again. These are good and right desires that all of you should have. But desires that are defined by the adjective evil. Evil desires that he says. These evil desires that could mean harmful or worthless. Often translated wicked desires. It should not be in the life of a believer. Being consistent, if these were consistently in our lives. Lastly, he says covetousness or greed. Something that's all too prevalent in our culture and around us. Greed is a strong desire to acquire more and more possessions, especially when there's no need. Greed. Another word can be selfishness. Jesus says, guard yourself against it in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. But he says, really what this is, this greed, it's actually idolatry. Idolatry. So you have taken your attention off the most valuable and prized individual, and you have placed those affections on something or someone else. Idolatry. John, in his first epistle in first john just abruptly ends his letter by writing little children guard yourselves from idols idols so watch out be alert be sure that these things do not rob your worship to the lord so sexual immorality impurity passions evil desires covetousness these things are to be put to death is what he says then he goes on 
Paul says in verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. For the one that lives in these consistently, the wrath and anger of God is coming for these individuals. And then he reminds them, reminds you as well. In these, you too once walked. You conducted your life in a manner where these were present continually when you were living in them, is what he's getting at. These shouldn't be in the life of a believer. It would be inconsistent with the transformation that was described in Colossians 3.1 from being raised to life with Christ. Inconsistent. Therefore, they must be put to death. These aren't outside of us. He says they're in us. They're in us. We can't point the finger. We must look internally and investigate and see where these things are sprouting up and put them to death. Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, speaks of what defiles an individual. Would you turn there with me? Mark chapter 7. Things that defile an individual. The, the Jews at this time, they were all concerned about the outside of mankind. Their laws, they have tweaked it so that it didn't address the heart, but instead look to the outward man. They washed their pots, they washed their hands before they eat. But Jesus goes on and he tells them what really defiles a person. He says in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Because of the natural man, we're equipped with these things. But in Christ, we've been given the new man, and part of that is putting to death the old man. A business that we should be about every single day. Sexual immorality and idolatry, they stand out in our culture, in our world. You cannot turn on the TV. You cannot listen to the radio. You can't scroll through social media without it being thrusted before you, shoved in your face. We have to be constantly on guard. Sexual immorality is so pervasive and celebrated in our culture that we must be aware 
of it infiltrating and coming into our lives. And often through the means of technology. I mean, there are so many wonderful things that our culture has, but in regards to the smartphone, for some of us, we can't handle it. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sometimes the best tactic is just to flee. Joseph demonstrated this when Potiphar's wife approached him. But better yet, Christ captures in Matthew chapter 5 the thoughts that Paul has, which is putting to death. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is what Paul's getting at. Man, it'd be hard to live without a hand. Be hard to live without an eye. I'd be handicapped, maybe so, but you don't go to hell in that way. It's seriousness. that we must have when it comes to putting sin to death. We must be serious about it. We must be engaged in the thoughts and, and conducting ourselves. Idolatry. It's not in the form of asteroids and bells like we've been studying in Judges, but it's in the form of appearance, possessions, careers. These are the things, these are the idols before us. It's not awkward little wooden images in the side of our homes, but it's the things that we place in front of God that we elevate and we worship with fear and money and time to achieve appearance, to achieve possessions, to achieve status in our careers. These are the things that are placed before us. These are the idols that we have to set aside. These are the things that we have to put to death in us. I mentioned to you one of my favorite Puritans a few weeks ago, but another one named Richard Baxter says something very similar to John Owen when he says this, You sin as sin uses you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. Though it brings you to the grave as it did your head, it shall not be able to keep you there. No amount of positive talk about health will cure a rupture appendix. The doctor will have to get negative and take out the appendix. No amount of lecturing on beauty will produce a garden. The gardener must pull the weeds. Must be serious about putting the deeds of the flesh to death. What is earthly in you. This is a serious business, and it's consistent with the Christian life. Put to death. Next, I want to look at put away. Put away. We see that in verses 8 and 9. Really, the same thought is 
put off. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So we are to put away. This is like a similar word that was used. Actually, it's the same word that was used when Stephen was being stoned. They laid off, they took off, and laid their garments at the feet of Saul, also known as Paul. It's putting off a garment. This also refers back to our list in verse 5, but he gives us a new list, another five things that should be put off, laid aside. First, he says anger. Anger. Oh, what a prevalent thing in our lives. Anger is any violent emotion, or another word is indignation. Now, there's times where this word is actually used for the Lord. Actually, this is actually the same Greek word that is used in verse 6 when it says the wrath of God is coming. This first anger here, it can actually be interchangeable with wrath, but this is the anger that is used that speaks about the justice and judgment of God that will come. But our anger is not that way, is it? He also uses another word. These words are kind of coupled together, and that is wrath. This word speaks to an intense, passionate desire of an overwhelmingly and possibly destructive character. Now, don't mistake in this is the same word that's in verse 6 for the wrath of God. Better yet, one translation actually first translate wrath, then anger, so that we wouldn't mistake in the two. We don't see that in our English Bibles, but this is, speaks of fury and violence that might come our way. It's used 17 times in the New Testament. Someone once said, well, that anger is a wind which blows out the lamp of the mind. It's like an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. It goes on to say, add one letter to anger and you see what you get. It's a very destructive emotion that often we express towards those that we most care about. It's to be pulled off, laid aside not in our lives as believers in Christ. Next, he uses the word malice. Used 11 times in the New Testament. Malice means to have ill will or the desire to injure. I think of the mean girls here. They, the idea of taking words, I want to hurt you right now. I know what to say to make you cry. The sad thing is these things boil up in our lives from time to time. And we can actually have malice towards others. He says, no, take that off. This shouldn't be in your life. Next he goes on to slander. Slander is used 19 times. And actually the New King James Version used blaspheme. And that's rightfully so. The Greek word is blasphema, which you hear it there. Slander is to revile blaspheme against another speak ill of someone, all for the aim to destroy their reputation. Slander. 
should not be present in the believer's life. And then lastly, he used obscene talk, dirty talk, filthy language, vulgar speech. These things should not be in the believer's life. Actually, flip over to Ephesians with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. If you're studying the book of Colossians, it's good to keep a bookmark or your place in Ephesians because Ephesians often expounds in places that he doesn't in Colossians. And very much some of the same language and topics are discussed. What Paul is doing here in these verses is he's doing a contrast between the things that should be put aside and therefore gives us instructions on what should be put on. Look at verses 26 through 32. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands, his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Very similar list reminding us we're putting off, laying aside these traits. It continues in verse 9 all by itself, do not lie. There's three imperatives in verses 5 through 11. It's put to death, put away, or lay aside, and then lastly, do not lie. Do not lie. Seeing that you've put off the old self or the old man. It's interesting that he mentions lying here, kind of all by itself. But for someone to continue in lying and falsehood would therefore mean the old man is still reigning. Matthew Henry commented on, these, on this verse. He says, in contrary both to the law of truth and the law of love, lying is both unjust and unkind, naturally tends to destroy all faith and friendship among mankind. Lying makes us like the devil who is the father of lies and is a prime part of the devil's image upon our souls, and therefore we are cautioned against this sin by this general reason, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. You've maybe heard the statement, well, you know you shouldn't lie in church. You heard that before? Statement I hear all the time. Something that I always think, well, does it mean if it's okay if I'm outside of church to lie? But the reasoning here, here is he doesn't want it amongst the body of Christ. We are people of the truth. We have the truth. We are redeemed and saved by the truth. We are not to lie. It shouldn't be in our lives. So in verses 8 and 9, as we consider these things, are you laying them aside, dear believer? 
Are you being conscious, conscious about it every single day? Being mindful, there are things in my life I must lay aside. I must wake up knowing that I struggle with anger. I struggle with malice. I struggle with slander. Is your response to your children or spouse that of anger or wrath? Do you find yourself talking about fellow members, neighbors, co-workers, family members in a slanderous way? Is coarse joking or filthy talk a common occurrence in your life? These things have no place in our lives. They're to be set aside. Are you lying to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? I think this is a fascinating one. I think about how does this happen week to week? And it occurred to me, it happens quite often. Right here in the hallways. One individual might say, how are you doing? And another individual might respond, I'm doing good. The first individual really had no desire to know how they were doing. It was just a greeting that we're accustomed to, and the second one's life is crumbling. And they mask it with, I'm good. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to spill our guts in the hallway. It doesn't mean that we can't. It just means that we should be honest with one another. It might be the answer, hey, could you come grab coffee, and I'll let you know all about it this next week. How else do we lie to one another? Oh, I'll be praying for you. How often does that come up? This morning I was texting someone and I texted out, praise God for writing it out, I'll be praying for you. I thought, I got to stop right now because I'm going to bring this up later and pray for this individual. There's a sweet dear lady that's no longer part of our membership that once told me one time what she does for that. She keeps a post in her Bible and every time she mentions that, she doesn't walk away until she writes that name and what she's going to pray for down. Just a simple, practical application to be sure that we remain truthful to one another, honest before one another. That old way of lying and not being honest, that's the old man. The new man has been put on. And that's what we'll look at next. The new man. Put on the new man. And we'll really dive into this next week. But in verse 10, he says, And have put off the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here in these verses, he speaks of the contrast. We have the action of putting off the old man. Now we put on the new man. Clothe ourselves in the new man. And it's in this that we want to look at. The old man has been described as earthly with practices such as sexual immorality, idolatry. The old man speaks to an unregenerate individual, meaning one that cannot respond to the spiritual things of life. One that continues in anger and slander and lies. But the new man, oh, this one has been brought to life has been raised up, has a heart of flesh, and can hear and responds to the word of God in a right and good manner. The new man it speaks of 
is one that's regenerate, made alive in Christ. He's explaining the transforming, the remolding, the overhaul of the gospel that takes place in the life of an individual. I read this morning from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, the old man is passing away. The new has come. You're a new creation. To remain consistent, this new creation lives completely in contrast of the old. Not marked by sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. Not marked by anger and wrath and slander and malice and obscene talk, but instead marked by a life that is being transformed and renewed in the image of its creator, Christ Jesus. We read from Ephesians 4, but going back a few verses in verse 23, he says, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The work of Christ in you is the most powerful work that's ever happened in one individual. You could have a completely new heart transported into your body. Nothing is as powerful as the working of Christ Jesus in you. It transforms the whole being and enables one to now put on the new man. We'll look next week at more of that, but even just in a glimpse here, he mentions that there's no longer Greek or Jew, there's no longer barbarian or Scythians. He's speaking, it goes, the gospel penetrates in two ways. First, it can go beyond nations and language and ethnicity. It goes beyond that. It can save a Greek, it can save a Jew. Can say of a barbarian, it can save a, a Scythian. These are speaking of those that are outside of the Greek-speaking world. It can save us a free man, a slave. Doesn't matter. All can be saved. But even at that, it goes presses on where we're not making the distinction between. We see all that all are there and present. Christ can save to the othermost. Christ is in all. And is all. MacArthur comments on this. He says, You can tell a lot about a person by what they wear. He says, You can tell from a baseball player, a bus driver, the postal carrier, policemen, people wear the uniform of their profession. Who, are, who we are determines what we wear. Failing to dress the part can sometimes have embarrassing consequences. He says, Many years ago, a very wealthy man in Southern California town was found wandering around the local country club wearing shabby clothes. He was promptly seized by security guards and charged with vagrancy even though he owned the country club. He had failed to dress consistent with who he was. Christians must dress themselves spiritually in accordance with their new identity. They have died with Christ and risen to new life. Salvation thus produces a two-sided obligation for believers. Negatively, they are to throw off the garments of the old sinful lifestyle. And positively, they must put on the lifestyle of the new man. 
That's what we've been called to. These are marks and consistencies of a believer in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among saints, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thankfulness. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is, covet, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ of God. I want to leave that before you this morning. Maybe you find yourself in that list. The wrath of God is coming for those that have yet to repent and believe. If these things mark your life and consistent habits, they rule you. Your members are given way to these. Dear friend, I'm pleading with you. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Believer, you walk next to those that are walking in this daily. Guard yourself from that influence, but proclaim the truth this morning. We are called as believers to be sure that we put to death the things that are earthly in us and to put on the new man. This calls for a confession of sin, for the old man sticking his ugly face up in our lives. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from others that you've slandered or lied to. Maybe you need life habits to change because temptation presses in and you find yourself coming underneath sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires. Maybe you need to grab another believer and ask them, hey, would you partner with me to pray for me? I deal with wrath and anger. I deal with lashing out towards my wife and kids. I deal with obscene talk at, at work. We're called to walk together, and that's the beautiful thing of the Christian life. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've had looking at Colossians, we pray that these wonderful truths that we've looked at, the fact that there are consistencies in the Christian life. In the negative, we're to put off, put to death, put away the old man, and in the positive, put on the new man. These are all workings, the outworkings of what's done in us by being raised to new life in your son, Jesus Christ. So help us walk in lives that are consistent and faithful I pray that our conduct would be honorable and, and would be marked by the new man, not the old. Father, for those of us that have struggled with this, I pray that you'd forgive us. Lord, we know we have confidence to walk in newness of life. We have confidence because it's the work in us. I pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit and your word. Lord, I ask for the one in this room that's yet there. They're still dead in their sins and trespasses. They had to understand that this is seriousness. This is a serious thing to consider the fact that if their lives do not turn from repentance, or turn to faith and repentance, they are walking into the wrath of yours. And that eternal judgment can't be undone. 
So, Lord, I pray that you'd save and redeem them this morning. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.